Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Redemption Tempe, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Butler, another pastor here at Redemption Tempe. Welcome back, Josh. Always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Great to be on again. Great. Yeah, and, and we have another special guest joining us for this week's podcast. Josh, can you tell us more about John Mark? Yes, uh, really excited this week to have John Mark Comer uh, on the podcast with us, an old friend from Portland, Oregon. Uh, John Mark, you are the pastor for Teaching and Vision of Bridgetown Church in Portland. And I just got to say, man, many of my friends, uh, I know many whose lives have been changed uh, by Jesus, obviously, uh, but in and through just uh, the ministry of Bridgetown. And uh, I've been greatly helped by your teaching, a number of things that, that God has uh, gifted you to share and bring not only to Bridgetown, but to the broader body of Christ. And having been in, in Portland for ages, kind of hometown back home, uh, just seeing firsthand kind of the witness, the integrity with which you lead and and all. And so really excited to kind of have worlds collide uh, today here and, and have you on as well. Thanks for making time to join us. Oh, it's such an honor. Thank you for the kind words, Josh. That means so much coming from you. You know, uh, I hold you in very high regard, and I miss you. Our city misses you. There's a gap here where you were, but we celebrate your new life in the sun at Redemption. <laughs> and, and let me just say, he's off limits. He's ours. Yeah, we're going to hold on to him. I, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine how tame <laughs> you are. So I'm happy to chat to you, one, because you're one of my favorite thinkers and writers, and two, because I just I feel like vicarious living in sunshine like i just imagine 74 <laughs> degrees right now I'm sitting outside drinking some coffee that's not anywhere close to as good as portland coffee but <laughs> i'm guessing the sun is more than making up for it so yes. I, I feel happy just to be long just to be on with you Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about Exodus today. We're in a series on Exodus, and we're going to get there soon uh, and really diving into some great material from your last book. Uh, Before we get there, you have a new book that just came out that I am so excited about. I'm about to dive into myself, but I I, I know I've already just gleaned a lot from hearing you talk uh, about some of these topics. Uh, The new book that has just come out is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And can you just uh, talk to us for a minute, just share kind of the big picture. What's your heart behind this book? What led you to want to write it? How do you see this addressing one of the challenges that we're facing as followers of Jesus today? Yeah, and I think the the entire book, this is a little odd. I've never done this before. Unlike uh, my previous book, which is all built around Exodus 34 and particularly two sentences in Exodus 34. This one was built actually around a short line that Dallas Willard, who is a hero of mine, I'm guessing of yours too, Josh, though I don't know. Um, And if you don't know who that is, uh, first off, you're welcome. That's the whole point of this podcast. Um, Check. Uh, But Willard uh, was a philosopher at the University of Southern California for many decades, and but is best known outside of academia, where his work was around phenomenology and um, basically can we know immaterial things like God, like morality. And his last academic work was called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. Fascinating figure. But outside of academia and kind of the world that we live in, he's best known as a writer and teacher of the way of Jesus, in particular, a kind of an expert around spiritual formation, the blend of psychology and spirituality and that the how, the process of how we become people who are more like Jesus and how we become pervaded by love. And um, there's a line that he said to John Ortberg, who is a pastor, writer, teacher in California, 
and a hero of mine. I actually just had lunch with him yesterday and um, just really a gem of a man. And he was mentored by Willard for, I think, over 20 years. And um, John told me the story. It's in a few of his books as well, where basically John was getting just sucked into the hurry and busyness and stress and chaos of life. Mm -hmm and asked Willard for advice. And Willard just said this really iconic line. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then he called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And when John first told me that story, I had this really weird, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, guys, but this like, like equal and opposite gut reaction. Like my mind said, that's ridiculous. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, you know? And especially, I mean, Josh, you're from Portland, you know, and I'm sure it's not that different down there, but living in one of the most post-Christian, you know, irreligious, secular, leftist cities in America, you know, I think a new study just came out saying Portland's the least religious city in our country. If you were to ask me, like, what's the greatest challenge you face following Jesus or, you know, doing your best to teach other people how to follow Jesus in a church? I don't know what I would have said, you know, whether it's politics or partisan stuff or liberal theology or human sexuality. I don't even know. But I like injustice. I don't think hurry would have even made the list, much less the top of it, you know? So my mind kind of had this, what, hurry? That's ridiculous. Everybody's in a rush. Everybody's busy. But then my gut had this, um, Josh, you're a musician, like, you know, like a tuning fork. And like when, you, when you're when you do a piano or whatever, and you have a tuning fork, is that middle C? I don't even know what you know what the note is. Is it middle C? I believe so. <laughs> yeah, but there's that. If you ever had that experience, you know, you hit a tuning fork, and like literally all the glass in the house shakes, and you feel it in your bones, like your bones shake. It's like this tremor. There's a, re, a resonance with reality. Middle C is a mathematical fact in the universe. And there's like, you tap into this reality. And so at a gut level, I think I had the opposite reaction. There was this like, oh my gosh, yes. That just put, put language to the issue underneath all of the other issues. Like when you see a doctor for chronic health issues and you have all these odd symptoms and you can't put them together. And then all of a sudden he, he names it with a diagnosis and you just feel, even if it's a bad diagnosis, you feel hope, optimism, joy, gratitude. You're like, okay, now we know what's wrong, so now we can hopefully do something to fix it. And I think, you know, I was just the classic kind of millennial trope in a city, you know, with a phone, way over busy, stressed out, overtired, working too many hours, sucked into entertainment, you know, all the stuff, discontent, living with low-grade anxiety. I was not all that happy. I'm not like a super sanguine personality by nature. And, and at a spiritual level, the greatest problem was year over year, I just was not becoming more loving. If anything, I was becoming more agitated, more stressed out, you know, more curt, more arrogant. And I just I had all these symptoms. And I think that just kind of put language to it. So that's basically the backstory behind the book. And the, the book is basically a journalistic, theological, psychological, historical case for how hurry is incompatible with love and incompatible with life in the kingdom of God, as well as like a manifesto for a new way of being at a slow down spirituality kind of for the modern era. Wow, man. Well, I I am really excited to be reading it this month and I would encourage uh, it, you to check it out, folks listening, and would love to even have conversations about it with those of you who do. So come find me and let's talk. It sounds amazing and really, really important. I, I think when you talk about the tuning fork and the reverberations of something underneath a lot of other uh, issues, 
it, that really resonates with me as well. That's great. There it is, middle C. Middle C, that's right. Yeah, uh, well, so we're in Exodus right now uh, on a series on the book of Exodus, and it's been so good, and we've seen God deliver his people from slavery and go through the Red Sea and provide uh, manna in the wilderness, water from a rock, and now we're at Mount Sinai. Are you guys going through, like, exegetically through every line? Or are you tracing themes? Uh, Forgive my ignorance. Like, how, how deep in are you? Great. No, we're deep. Yeah, we're, 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 we're not going line by line, but we are going kind of chapter by chapter. Or, you know, sometimes we'll take yeah. two or three chapters at a time. So um, how many weeks are we in, Greg? It's probably been about uh, it's, eight to ten weeks. Well, this, yeah, this, so full disclosure here, podcast magic. We, we aren't recording this on the day that you're hearing it. So, uh, yeah, by the time you're hearing it, we're, we're in Exodus 32 through 34. And this is, uh, this is week 14 of 15. We only have one more week. Wow. Uh, yeah. I love it. Well done. It's, it's more and more rare, I feel like, for churches to do teaching from the Old Testament in general and in particular a book like Exodus. I love that you're in it. Yes, definitely. It's been so good uh, learning so much myself, even just personally getting to dive back into this foundational part of the story. And this week in Exodus 32 to 34, uh, we come to kind of the climactic scene in this where God uh, speaks his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. God has this encounter and uh, we want to kind of hone in and camp out there. Exodus 34 verses six to seven, where God speaks his name to Moses and he doesn't come up and say, hi, I'm God. Right? He says, Yahweh. <laughs> and you have a book called God Has a Name on these very verses, verses six to seven here in Exodus 34. And we thought it'd be great to have you on the podcast, John Mark, just to talk about this a bit more. I, I really love just learning from your reflections on the significance of this. And maybe one way to start is, uh, why is it significant that God has a name? Uh, yeah, wh wh what would you see as being so significant that God does have a name and reveals himself personally in these verses. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. There's a lot <laughs> we can say. I mean, I think the first thing to point out, I'm sure you guys have already done this in your series, is just the, the oddity in translation from Hebrew to English and how God's name of Yahweh is translated as a, not a name, but as a title in English, as the Lord in all caps. And there's a fascinating kind of, you know, history of interpretation behind that. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but they're not linguistic reasons. They're like historical reasons. And so like in your English Bible, it shows up as the Lord, all caps, which is a title like, you know, wife or husband or boss or master or judge. But the actual Hebrew word is the proper name for God. It's Yahweh. And it is a proper like Josh or Greg or John Mark. And I think that right, I think there's a whole like, you know, not to play armchair psychologist, but I think there's a whole like thing in there about the human trepidation to approach God on terms of intimacy, often out of fear or out of, for any number of reasons, fear, shame, a desire to control and manipulate God. It's easier to control and manipulate an idea or an ideology for your own agenda than it is to control a person <laughs> with a name and a reputation. And um, so I think I think there's all sorts of reasons, and it's it's worth not getting all hyper introspective, but I, I think it's worth you know a little time exploring that inner terrain of our soul, like what in it, like why is it that our English Bibles still have a title? in place of a name. And if you think about it, what you call somebody has 
often is a prime indicator of the level of intimacy you have with that person. You know, so I doubt that, um, you know, First Lady Michelle yeah. calls, you know, President Obama, <laughs> president, probably calls him, I don't know, Barack or I don't know if like, she must have some nickname for it, you know. My wife doesn't call me Mr. Comer or Pastor Comer, or, you know. My kids call me, you know, Daddy. Nobody else calls me Daddy or Dada, you know. And that all of that, so when you call somebody, says something about the level of intimacy in your relationship and the level of access you have to them. And the fact that God wants his people to call them him by his proper name, Yahweh, not a title, not, you know, Lord of the universe, not master of all, not, you know, Lord Almighty. Those are other titles that are beautiful and there's a place for that. But his invitation is to actually call him by his proper name. And I think that right from the very beginning, this is an invitation to intimacy with God. And I think the evangelical catchphrase, a personal relationship with God, which is a cliche that very few people actually experience for all of the talk about it. Like very few people actually tell me what that is actually like on a day-to-day basis. How do you experience loving relationship with God at a personal level? And often like people just, you know, deer in the headlights come up blank in that moment for all of our talk about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that the first for me, the first like major takeaway is, oh, wow, God is not an idea or an ideology or a doctrine. He is a person. And by person, I don't mean a human being or a man or a woman. I mean, he is a relational being. I mean, I think even of the classic hymn, God in three persons, God in three relational entities And he's a relational being who wants to relate to us, to be in relationship with us at a level of access and intimacy that I think is far beyond what most of us are comfortable with. Wow. Well, man, I love, that's powerful. And I love how you point out in the book how these two verses, verses six to seven here, these are uh, the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. And I think you have like the John 3.16, so to speak, uh, of the Bible. Yes, of Jewish culture or the, or the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah, like that the Bible quotes these verses, uh, either quotes them directly or alludes to them regularly, which speaks to the significance of this this moment in the story of God revealing his name to Moses and through Moses to his people. And it makes me think of like, you know, I imagine if I'm sitting at a coffee shop or something, I see a stranger across the room, I can start to guess like, oh, I bet their name's Billy and they work in architecture and they, you know, but it's all just kind of projection or guesswork. But how it changes the game if that person walks across the coffee shop and speaks their name to me and begins to let me in on who they are and their character. And you talk a bit about how God's revelation here is giving us of his name confronts some of our own projections about God. Can we talk about that for a minute? Just how how does this actually con- not only invite us into personal relationship, but also kind of confront maybe some of the preconceived notions that we might tend to have? Oh, yeah. And and especially in the ancient world, which is a very different cultural moment than our kind of post-Christian Western one. You know, I mean, God's self-description of himself is was radically at odds with what most people would have thought about gods and goddesses in the ancient world, who for the most part were unreliable, intermittent, cruel, vicious, selfish, sexual, you know, narcissistic. I mean, this is just um, just a radical departure from what most people's expectations were at the time, you know? And so I do think it radically confronts the projections that all of us put on God, which is m- maybe the oldest or one of the oldest human condition issues. 
And um, I, I think it lets us into God's nature. I mean, one of the things that I just find really interesting is that when God begins to list off his self-revelation of himself, he doesn't start like with where Western systematic theology starts with like the omnis, you know? And this was just really, none of this, I'm mean, very little of that book is, is unique to me. And like, we have, we have a word for new ideas in the church, it's called heresy. So most of this is just honestly sitting with our mutual friend, Dr. Gary Bashir is in seminary. And he was the one that first exposed me to this idea of Exodus 34, which honestly, I mean, I'd grown up reading the Bible, but I, I, I never really paid much attention at all to this line. I have, you know, quoted it to you like at John 3:16 or something. I think that language of the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible is from him. And if you know in a Jewish culture, this is like the John 3.16 of Jewish culture. This is like ground zero. And the writers of the Bible at all sorts of really fascinating places come back to this self-declaration of God. Basically, God saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is your theology of me over and over again. And I just think it is so interesting that when God talks about himself, he talks about himself very differently than we often talk about God, particularly as Westerners, where like I think of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, one of the best-selling books of the last century, and I love Tozer, I love his writing, but you know, it's a classic book about God, or you could, you know, you could think about, there's been some other best-selling books about God since then, and they start with the omnis, God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, and you know, God is immutable, God, and they go through Western philosophical and platonic categories for the most part. And that's not all bad. Um, and I'm not saying I don't even, don't even agree with most of that. But when God talks about himself, he, he doesn't say anything about how powerful he is or how he knows everything there is to be known or even that he created everything or that, you know, he's outside of time and space or, you know, aspects about his, he doesn't say any of that. He talks about his personality and his inner disposition and his nature and the first thing he says is that he's compassionate. And that for me, my personality, the church of origin I grew up in, that for me, like just sitting with that reality, the first and most important thing God says about himself is that he's compassionate. And Jesus follows that up over and over and over again. Jesus agrees with that. Mm. That to me was like, oh my gosh, I just sat with that for years and let it kind of work, not just on my view of God, but on, I think, the inner core of my being and my spiritual formation. Mm, that's so good. Yeah, I love you mentioned our, our mutual friend, Dr. Gary Brashears, and how I, I believe he, you know, would do a survey in class, classes sometimes where uh, he would ask people kind of how they describe what they liked and thought about a number of topics, a number of things, and they'd rattle off stuff. Uh, and then he'd give them the same question on what they thought God liked and thought about a, number, a certain number of things and how, I think he said like 90% of the time or something, it was the same. You're going <laughs> to try the same answers. And you know, God, the classic, like God created us in his image and we returned the favor. <laughs> favor. I love yeah. that quip. Yeah. Well, and this is so this is so important. You know, Tozer's line um, that I opened in that book with because I just it's still so important is that you know quote what you think about God is the most important think of thing about you, and and then he said because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God, meaning if you think of God as a you know angry vicious homophobic or whatever, then the, the odds are very high that you will become angry and vicious. Or if you're in a Portland or maybe where you guys are at and you're more likely to think of God as like a progressive, anything goes yoga coach, then that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of, which yeah. is honestly far more common here than God of breath, I think, 
then that's the kind of person, for better or for worse, it will shape you into. I just read this fascinating. Have you read anything by um, the neuroscientist Andrew Newberg? I've heard the name, but I haven't read uh, him yet. No. Yeah, he's written a lot. It's really interesting. He's a kind of a leading neuroscience and a researcher around neuroscience and spirituality. And he's not a Christian, um, but he's very friendly and is, he's very much like a fan of Christian faith and practice. And he, I just read this book by him called, um, I think it's called How God Changes the Brain. And it's basically a neurological exploration and explanation of Tozer's line, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And he does all of the science, like it starts with mirror, mirror neurons. Like, you know, when you're around people who are happy, you feel happy. When you're around people who are stressed out, you feel anxious. You know, when people smile, it does something, you smile back. These are all the mirror neurons that we have. And he has this great like explanation of how you know, using mirror neurons and some other like the anticular cingulate and some other parts of our brains that are stimulated when we meditate on a God of compassion, it makes us less angry, less fearful, and it stimulates the part of the brain that makes us more compassionate. Wow. And so he's basically explaining the neuroscience behind what Christian's been saying thousands of years that as you meditate on this, is what all the mystic tradition said, right? As you meditate on the compassionate love of God, mm. what the ancients called the beautific vision, or you know, a couple of centuries ago called behold, beholding and becoming, mm. as you as you meditate on the love of God, you, that's how you become more loving. Not through willpower or self-effort or three easy steps. Mm. You meditate on the compassionate love of the Trinitarian community mm. coming toward you through Jesus and by the Spirit. And it does. And all they couldn't explain the neuroscience. They just says it does. It, they would just say it does something to make you more compassionate, loving. And he's saying all the neuroscience. And the tricky thing, he's actually saying that neuroscience is true on the opposite end. So if your view of God is a wrathful, violent capricious God, it will make you that way. I found this quote, um, gosh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it's one of, it's an archbishop from the Anglican church who made this great point that about if your view of God is wrong, if it's toxic, then the more religious you become, the worse you will become until you'll eventually reach a place where it'd be better for you to be an atheist than a Christian. Wow. And you know, it's so interesting when you just think about people on both the left and the right, whose visions of God have become so corrupted by culture on the right or the left mm. and so warped out of shape from what we see in Jesus and the writings of the library of scripture that at some point you wonder, man, it, it would almost be better if you were an atheist. That's you know? good. Yeah. Think about God it matters so much. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, I thought it'd be good to actually dive into some of the specific attributes and ways that God describes himself here. And you've uh, already, yeah, this has been great. Jump into a few. Like God leads with compassionate and gracious, that God is compassionate and gracious. You call uh, this like God's baseline, that God's baseline towards us is mercy and the kind of difference that makes. And uh, it's powerful to hear how, yeah, even it seems neuroscience uh, kind of backs up what the tradition, what Christianity, you know, Followers of Jesus have been saying for thousands of years that yeah. if we reflect on the God revealed in Christ, it shapes and changes and forms us um, as we encounter him. And then the, the next attribute that God gives you kind of mentioned too is slow to anger. And I love how in your book, you talk about how for some of us, uh, the challenge is recognizing that God is slow to anger and for others, yeah. slow to anger. <laughs> and why is good news? Uh, we've kind of talked a bit now about compassionate and gracious. You can say anything more there too, if you have any thought, more thoughts there that you want to dive into. But I'm also curious, how is it, why is it good news both that God is slow 
to it, but also that he does get to it. You know that, um, yeah, that, that there's, uh, as you mentioned, it's not like a vindictive, wrathful God, yet there is this part of God's uh, nature that uh, deals with sin with a, a just anger or wrath. How, how, how do you see the two of those working together, kind of the slowness to it and the um, eventually to it? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think similar to you, Josh, I, I, I don't view them as at odds. I actually view them as connected at the hip and as kind of two sides of the same coin. So I think really big for me is a lot of rabbinic thought, you know, argues that at an exegetical level and like your hermeneutic or the way that you're reading Old Testament texts, order matters a lot. And so order is order of importance. This is before like mm -hmm. bullet points or number one, number two, number three, how we would maybe write you know, uh, an essay about God. And so a lot of rabbinic thought would say the fact that compassionate and gracious are first is very important. That means that is, you know, yeah, I use the line of like baseline emotional or relational disposition toward us. And compassionate is actually different than the word love is actually used later, but it's closer to what a lot of us actually mean by the English word love. So the, the Hebrew root word there, I believe, and it's um, the root word is female womb. And it's a word that is used for both mothers and fathers through the Hebrew scriptures and in Hebrew for the way that a parent, particular mother, but it's used of a father too in the Psalms, feels about their young child, um, not teenage child, but, but like little baby, um, you know, and there it's a, so compassion is a feeling word, not an action word. So God feels, so basically what it's saying is that the way that, and of course, all of this breaks down by human analogy, but as a general rule, the way that a mother feels about their infant mm. or a father feels about his little daughter or little son, this you know, kind of emotion of, of love, delight, affection, instant desire, you know, warm feelings of, of love, as we would call it, that's kind of how God feels about us. And then gracious is not a feeling word. Gracious is an action word. So, and this is where there's, you know, disagreement over how to interpret grace in the New Testament. My personal definition of grace is just God's empowering presence. So I think it's um, like power in Paul's writings, almost a synonym to um, the word, to the Holy Spirit. So like it's in our English usage, like when you go through something really hard and somebody's like, how do you get through that? And people will say, you know, I just, I don't know, I just had grace for it. And what, what we mean by that is we just had this like inner strength come often from a source outside of us, the Holy Spirit, or from deep in us that gave us the capacity, the wisdom, the endurance, the fortitude to do what we needed to do and be who we needed to be. So that's this idea of gracious, like God helps. He, he helps us live the life that he's put before us in, in, in the Exodus, in freedom. He helps us come from Egypt into the promised land, from slavery and freedom, you know? So all that to say, compassionate and gracious these are like this is how god is he's like a father and mother he feels he's there but he's like there to offer his rich resources and pastor us into freedom in the new land and help and mm. and then we have this line that he's slow to anger and i think you have to see whatever he's whatever god is saying about slow to anger as coming out of this baseline of compassionate loving grace and you know and so hence slow to anger and so yeah i do some work in the book and this is a long conversation but about anger, it's so interesting, like most anger as we experience it, I think is toxic. So if you think about the kind of anger that Jesus is referring to at the Sermon on the Mount, again, if you, if you take order to be important, some don't, I do. I think that the Sermon on the Mount has a, a logical flow to it. 
in an order of importance. And I think that Jesus starts with anger. I think he's saying that at some level, the base problem in all human relationships is anger. And the kind of anger that Jesus is referring to is not the kind of anger you feel over or hear over like a legitimate injustice. It's the anger of contempt, you know, is my reading of it. And even if Willard and others, it's this anger that's rooted in I'm better than you. And I look down my nose at you as a person and I don't care about you. And you haven't done what I've wanted. And so I think I'm at a moral level. I'm superior than you. And I'm angry because you didn't give me what I wanted. That, that I think is basically the base problem of, you know, you know, trace the etymology of any divorce, any end of a friendship, any church split, any angry political, social, like at its core, you will find an anger that is a contempt at the core, at the base of it. I think you can trace it down. So that's the kind of anger that we're familiar with. You know, we get, we get, we have anger that's contempt, moral superiority, you know, particularly as we think about political and social issues, you know, us versus them, we're the good people, they're the bad people, not the Solzhenitsyn, you know, line between good and evil runs between all people, but like us versus them, black and white, we're the innocent, you know, righteous victims, they're the evil perpetrators, you know, and everything is like that. We're familiar with that kind of anger. And then on a more day-to-day basis, I think more just kind of pedestrian anger of when people don't do what we want and our will is crossed, you know, whether it's, you know, our spouse doesn't acquiesce to what we want to do that night or somebody doesn't show up on time or somebody doesn't give us the pay rates we want or when we don't get what we want and our will is thwarted we respond a lot of us most of us with anger that's not the anger that is being talked about here by god there's another kind of anger that is not narcissistic it's actually loving and is not rooted in contempt it's actually rooted in compassion and passion that is the anger that, that, again, I think most of us, <laughs> we rarely experience this kind of anger, but it is actually the emotionally healthy and mature response to evil in the world. And the closest thing I can think about, although even this analogy breaks down because it's so corrupted by contempt, but is some of the anger that we feel over injustice, whether it be at a racial level or whatever it is, or to personalize it a little bit more and take it out of the Twitter sphere, the anger that we feel at, say, you know, if you have a teenage kid and there's a drug dealer across the street, or I think some of the anger that I've felt even as our school system in Portland has gone just crazy far left at some of the indoctrination of my children, that I feel is like 1984, big brother, thought police level, you know, not education, but indoctrination. And I feel anger when my kids are coming home confused over some core tenets of what it means to be human. And I, I feel I feel an anger, and that's not necess- that's not just an egoistic. I didn't get what I wanted. I'm better than those people. It's uh, listen. You're wrecking my poor kid's soul, and I have to come do mop up damage because I care about my child, you know. And and there's there's an anger that is rooted in love. And anybody, any parent, any friend who doesn't feel a modicum of a healthy kind of anger rooted in love is not actually a loving person. You know, when I hear about a tragedy in another country or another people and I think, oh, that sucks. and I don't feel any anger. That's because I don't have any love for those people. If I actually was emotionally and relationally connected with somebody and I heard about political corruption or a natural disaster or a war or a theft, I would feel angry because I'm in a loving relationship. So the fact that I'm not angry is often a sign that I'm not in a loving relationship. So it's really interesting. I think most of us experience too much anger for things that we shouldn't be angry about. 
and not nearly enough anger for things that we should. So all that to say, the anger here, you just have to, you have to clarify, you know, not that those three categories of anger are exhaustive, they're not, but what kind of anger are we talking about? I think the anger here that God is slow to and is the kind of anger of a, of a parent toward a drug dealer with their teenage kid, you know, or, or a, a parent toward, you know, um, injustice toward their child or something like that. It's that kind of a, it's that the word jealous is used a few paragraphs later. And I don't think it's a jealous, like an insecure boyfriend jealous. Zealous, I think, is a better translation. Zealous, God cares. He's not indifferent. So much of what we call tolerance, as Ellie Weisel so wisely pointed out, is just a form of indifference. It's not actually, it's, it's actually a narcissistic indifference. Yeah, that's so good. One of the things I love there, too, is I feel like you're really helping us connect like that God is compassionate and gracious with slow to anger. Like sometimes it feels like people will, you know, you kind of go like, oh, he's this sometimes. And then sometimes he's like this and going, no, it's the same God, the same character uh, yes. in, in relation to us. In, and, you know, and that's where that slow thing is so important. Totally. Know? I think you even it's, point out how. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, say it. Go yeah, ahead. you even point out how like the language of long suffering or the sense of God enduring things that are wrong in his world, but being patient with us, like the patience of God really strikes me. Um, as well as I think you use kind of the scene of uh, Lincoln in uh, Daniel Day Lewis as, as uh, Abraham Lincoln in, in the movie about him, but right. where he's, you know, he endures for a long time, kind of this gnarly stuff that's going on around him and divisive kind of different opinions. But then finally, he kind of, he confronts it and, uh, and the room goes quiet because it's like, okay, well, if he's going to, we know he's patient with us when he, it means it's serious when he kind of is there. But even that, in that scene, it's like, it's not like he loses his temper or goes off the rails. No, it's like it's a deliberate, deliberate yep. response that's and appropriate to the moment. And it works. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the Jesus example is the cleansing of the temple, I think is what I use if I remember correctly. And people often misread the cleansing of the temple story. Like Jesus just walks in and is like, what you're selling stuff. And he just like goes crazy and starts throwing over tables and, um, you know, which is a, which is a really a gross misreading of the story. You forget a couple of things that Jesus has been coming to that same temple since he was a little boy. None of this is new. Like he's seen this hundreds, if not thousands of times. He was just there recently. And the, the gospel writers, um, and some of this is over my pay grade and, and into yours, Josh, but at a scholarly level, many of them, like N.T. Wright, argue that the cleansing of the temple was Jesus' deliberate act of provocation you know, provocation to basically engineer his, his death and his arrest and then later his death. So Jesus knew he waited till the very end of his ministry, as we would say, to do that cleansing of the temple because he knew that it would get him killed. And he was willing to do that to call out the corruption, the injustice that had the cancer that had infected the heart of the society, the temple that was supposed to be the place of overlap between heaven and earth is supposed to be the place where God ruled Israel and the world from was absolutely had a cancer in it and a poison that Jesus came to eradicate and heal. But he saves it literally for his last week on earth because he knows it will get him killed. So that's like that. And then all of a sudden, then that anger story looks totally different. Oh, he's been coming here his whole life. This has been slowly building, thinking, praying, meditating, calling back, calling Jerusalem to repentance doing miracles in Jerusalem, inviting people 
Jerusalem to follow him away from corruption, away from an injustice. And he finally he says, all right, enough is enough. The time has come. He does his prophetic kind of Jeremiah act in the temple and then he's killed for it. Um, I think that's how we need to think about the anger of God. I'm reading Jeremiah right now. And it's just like, it's like God is, you could read it as God threatening Israel for chapter after chapter, unless if you read it as like this loving parent who just doesn't sound like a West Coast progressive. He sounds like an ancient Jew, you know, or Hebrew, like a little cantankerous and passionate and zealous, like calling Israel back. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. This is what will happen. This is what will happen. This is what will happen for centuries before he finally says, all right, have it your way and takes away his hand and Babylon comes in. Definitely. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I, I love and you write others have uh, seen it as even a, a prophetic foreshadowing of the coming destruction, as you mentioned, with Roman Empire and eventually tearing down the temple and all. And that in that light, that there is a sense of warning in it of Jesus. Uh, yeah, like this act is foreshadowing what's coming, you know, because of, yeah, that God has been slow, very slow to anger, enduring, but then the, the time is coming. Um, if, yeah, but yeah, like you said, that compassion, that graciousness that um, of a, a parental kind of heart towards their children that God has towards us, which just seems to pop when you go then the, to Jesus teaching us to pray the Lord's prayer, like our father, like it, it feels like it, it, all this seems to be unpacking just the character of God. Our father. Yeah. What, what would you say? Uh, because of time, I don't, I want to make sure we can, uh, uh, I want to keep you too long, but would love to talk about the last two phrases, you know, that God is abounding in love and faithfulness, and then that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You've got some um, just great thoughts and reflection on how God's love and faithfulness provokes for us kind of this long obedience in the same direction at a time that we're torn in this kind of age of instant gratification. Um, I guess one question would be how, how does God's love and faithfulness, how can that help guide us in that long obedience? And likewise, how do we do with some people kind of get to the end of the passage? And um, you talk about, though, that, you know, some people get to the end and go, whoa, God seems like he, he ends on kind of an angry note or something. I know. It's, it's like he's killing, killing grandbabies. And you're like, wait a minute. How do we get from compassion to killing little kids? Totally. Yeah. And you talk about this as the God who just won't stop until we're completely free. Um, and so yeah. as we get to kind of the end of these verses, uh, this abounding love and faithfulness and not leaving the guilty and punished. Um, what do you see as some big takeaways for us there? Yeah. Um, I mean, so the, yeah, there's two kind of major more units of thought and there's the abounding love and faithfulness. And, you know, um, the Hebrew scholars I read said that love and faithfulness function kind of a little bit as a pair. And I forget the word for it. Can you remember Josh, but where they, they kind of explain each other and edify and give insight to each other. Yeah, I know. Um, like the Hesed uh, is one of them, which is kind of that. Yeah, yeah. Hesed is love. And I, yes, and I there's, there's the a grammatical one. name for when you put two words together, mm. and and they each like illuminate and um, add depth to each other. I'm yeah, on me too. Like the righteousness and justice. I know is another one of those pairs. Yes, but I, yes exactly. Yeah, and it's. It's been five years since I wrote the book, so forgive me. It's in the book, whatever the Who cares? The English teachers all hit me right now. Go get but, the um, book to find out. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't a shameless book. I just, as an apology. But uh, so these two words go together, and yet love, again, one of the things that has been so interesting for me doing the research on this project for that book and this text, and then just living in Portland, is realizing how the English word love is, is so unhelpful at times, and it's such mm. a junk drawer 
often what people mean by love is is not remotely what Jesus means by agape. You know, most people mean either tolerance, which again is often closer to mm. narcissistic indifference than it is the actual love. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's because when you don't have an agreed upon definition of good, if agape love is to will the good of another, you can't love people if you don't have an accurate vision of the good. That's a major societal problem that we have mm. right now. Yes. Is if we can't agree on what good is and what evil is, then we can't agree on what love is. Because if love is to will the good, it requires an agreed upon definition of good. That's why the, the whole thing like just do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm anybody doesn't work in a pluralistic society because we all disagree on what harm is. You know, like as a, as a man and as a father, I think that pornography is harm. I think it's dangerous to me, to my sons, to our society. And I have scientific reasons for that, theological reasons for that. Other people have totally different opinions. That, that creates a massive problem in our society. If we can't define good and evil, we can't define love versus harm. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, love here. So compassion is actually the, the or mercy is how the ESV translates it, is actually closer to what a lot of us think of by love, this kind of feeling word of God's feeling toward us. Love here is, as you said, it's this word hesed. And yeah, exactly what you just said. Most scholars argue the best translation is covenant loyalty. So it basically has to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham. I'll bless you. You'll be a blessing. And you, all nations on earth, will be blessed. And God's fidelity to keep that promise, which literally, if you follow biblical theology, culminates in Jesus himself. Like mm -hmm. as Israel's like absolute incapacity to stay faithful to their side of that bargain, their side of the covenant. So God literally comes and like he did for Abraham, puts them into a deep sleep and does the whole thing, does both sides of the covenant for them as Jesus. He fulfills the God side of the covenant, the promise to bless to all the nations, and he fulfills the human or the Israel side of the covenant as Jesus in the incarnation to bless. Like that level of fidelity that takes us all the way to Jesus and then out the other side into the new covenant or the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So love here is, so basically one scholar I read said God's love is his faithfulness mm -hmm. and God's faithfulness is his love. So the idea that God is loving and faithful and maintaining love to thousands is basically that God will be relentlessly faithful to us. He will never abandon us. He will never let us go. He will stay with us through no matter what comes, and he will advocate for blessing in and through our lives until our last breath and beyond. Mm. And so this incredible vision of God's fidelity and faithfulness and loyalty and stability and love that I think is just so stunning, especially if we, again, take who God is as our true north for who we want to grow and mature into. I was just with a dear friend of mine yesterday who was just in deep pain processing a friend, a longtime friend of his who's basically leaving the friendship, abandoning him. It's a very long story. And he's had this happen to him multiple times where friends have basically kind of ended the friendship or and petered out. Not, and that sounds too clear, but just kind of abandoned him, basically. And it goes back to his father did the same to him. There's like this deep pain in friends that haven't said anything nasty, done anything nasty, haven't stolen money from him or punched him in the face. They just have not stayed faithful. Mm. And there's deep pain. And then you realize, oh, a big part of love is I will be your friend, I'll be your husband, your wife, I'll be your father, I'll be your whatever, until my last breath. Like mm. I'm in this with you no matter what comes. And that's the kind of love that is so lacking in interpersonal relationships, mm. but is so on offer in God, you know? So I think that's, that's the faith, love and faithfulness thing. Oh, that's so good, man. That's so, yeah, so powerful. Yeah, I think all of this stuff has been really helpful in, in squaring in what um, 
I mean, we could, it's two whole chapters and they're really important chapters in Exodus here. Uh, and and we, yeah. we focused in on, on kind of, as we were calling it, the John 3.16 portion of it, but really, really helpful, uh, <laughs> helpful to understand this. And I have heard before, like, this is actually a really good piece of scripture to memorize. If you're going to memorize scripture, it's, it's a historical yeah. tradition of sorts even. So, um, yeah. Or just meditate on, because again, all of this, this is not just random facts mm. about God. This is like a vision of who God is and of the kind of people that we become as we follow God, worship God, surrender to God, yield to the spirit of God in us. Like the whole invitation is that as we're captivated by this vision of a God who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, you know, forgiving, but just, and we can talk about the, that part if you want, or we're out of time, either way is great for me but like that we become these kinds of people. Definitely, man. Well, if I could just say to you, like what you're just saying about the, the abounding in love and how that even just reflecting on that right now is encouraging to me where I, I do think we often think of love as sort of like, I love you means I, you make me feel good. Kind of you know, yeah, versus right. here it's like, I love you. God's saying, I love you. I'm abounding in love means like I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm sticking with you. you. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you through thick and thin. And man, I, I continually because need to come back to love as desire and if we're if we're if we're brutally honest as narcissistic desire so when i say i love you know hummus what i mean is <laughs> i want to eat it and often you know yeah. I, for my own pleasure and often when we say i love you especially when we're talking about romantic relationships often what we mean is i want to consume you at an emotional level i don't mean to be like kinky or weird i just mean yeah. that is honestly what we mean is i want to get pleasure yeah. from you at some level um because i really feel pleasure from you and and then the, the dark underbelly to that is what happens when we no longer mm. get that same pleasure kickback emotional relational sexual do we just get divorced abandon the friendship move on leave our church leave that community leave that friendship and that's where like oh wow this god isn't just saying i desire you because you make me feel good you know God is saying, I will be, I will be faithful to you mm -hmm. forever. That's, that's the man, that's the human ache. Well, and I, I feel like, especially in this series, I keep coming back to, uh, like, man, we could be on and talk about this for hours. Uh, but all good things do have to come to an end. Uh, and so this is really, this is, true. This is really good stuff to meditate on. Uh, I, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast with us, John Mark. Um, it's an honor. Yeah, I uh, I found myself quiet through most of this one because, frankly, Josh had better questions than me. But I was just glad because I because I talked too much. No, not so at all. They, like I, I was just going to say, this has been really good to just like hear and 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 sit in um, and to really turn our paradigm um, of how God pursues us and and views us and and to separate that from really like what can be all of our narcissistic tendencies that we can prescribe onto the idea of love, which is actually different than the type of love that God, that Jesus has for us. So um, exactly. yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and one of the thing we, we kind of like touched on some of this stuff too, that, that I just want to mention, uh, we were talking about the tuning fork, that middle C at the very beginning, a throwback to the beginning. Um, yeah. Just for people listening, I think another area that is really helpful is your podcast with Mark Sayers. We had him on our podcast about a year ago called This Cultural yeah, Moment. Great. Um, He's a gem. Yeah, yeah. And your guys' podcast has been 
the way I would put it is a tuning fork, uh, at least for me. I, you guys are putting words to things that I feel are true, but have never really been able to like put words to. And there's a cultural commentary to it that's really helpful. So, um, yeah, we just appreciate yours and, and your and Mark's podcast and the books that you've written and just the ways you contribute to the greater church. So, uh, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I would highly encourage folks. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. It's I would great. highly encourage folks to go check that out if you haven't. This Cultural Moment, the podcast. Uh, many of you, love, I think last fall, we did our series on Daniel. And uh, we mentioned in the series, but that was inspired by a lot of the themes coming out of that podcast. And uh, would highly encourage It's a great resource. So definitely, listeners, go check it out. Yep, that's good. So, John Mark, once again, thanks a lot for taking the time. Uh, and Yeah, and Josh, thank you for uh, for really taking the wheel on this one. You, you killed it. It's great. Oh, grateful for you, John Mark. Thanks for hanging out with us, man. Yeah. Same to you guys. So grateful for the work you do. Enjoy the incredible weather you're about to have. And I'll think of you when I'm sitting by the fire and it's dark at four in the afternoon yeah. and I'm just attempting to meditate on the joy of God to get through. We're, we're hoping we can have at least four days this year to have a good fire. If you have a fireplace there. So thank you all for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. Where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.